Well, thank you all so much for not all running off when you found out that Mark wasn't going to be teaching today, so it's good to see everybody. And uh, I am so grateful that uh, Mark has allowed me uh, this uh, privilege uh, to be able to bring the lesson uh, this week. And I got to spend some time with him last week, and that is just always golden. And uh, I just appreciate him uh, allowing me this uh, chance. When I ask him, I say, I know you're in Paul, and I know you're in the the, uh, subject of if you were Paul's defense attorney, how would you defend him? And uh, he said, yep. And I said, so what would you, what would you want me to cover? Because I didn't want to do anything legal, you know, because I'm a little out of my league when it comes up beside him. And uh, he said, well, just anything on Paul. And so it's like, wow, okay, that's, that's wide open. So uh, I have actually been thinking a lot for actually for several years on Acts 17. You may be very, very familiar with the passage, Acts 17, when uh, Paul is in uh, Athens. And uh, whenever he gives a defense for the gospel and he's speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers and all of that. And that's always just intrigued me because, number one, I was going to do a project in seminary on that. And then secondly, just as the more and more I read it, I said, you know, this could be literally superimposed in our day and time. You know, it's, it's like uh, you know, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And even though we're in a, a day and time when technology is changing and, and uh, 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 changes by leaps and bounds in a very, very short period of time, I mean, even this, like right here, I am going to do my best to use Elmo at least once uh, today, because I was like, man, if I ever get up there, I got to use that thing. So, uh, but, but technology is just, is rapidly changing. But you know what? Ideas really have not changed that much. When it comes to truth, when it comes to uh, uh, who God is, the reality of God, and so forth. That's why Solomon said, yeah, there's really nothing new under the sun. Because in our day and time, you just take some of those same old ideas. In fact, some of those ideas that the Apostle Paul dealt with and faced and gave a reason to count to counteract on, uh, on, in, in uh, Acts 17, a lot of those have just simply been repackaged and called by another name. But when you really break it down and you really start looking at those ideas, they're the same. Now, I I don't know if any of you have done a lot of study in spiritual gifts or not and figured out what your spiritual gift is and whether it's teaching or giving or prayer or faith or whatever it might be. And I'm going to say something that might be a little bit controversial, but that's okay. Um, But I want to say this. I'm not so sure that the gift of evangelism, or if you will, the gift of, of the evangelist is really a gift. Now, I do believe it's one of the responsibilities, and Ephesians 4 tells us about those that are given to the church for the training of the saints. But as far as having a gift of evangelism, I'm not so sure. Because, okay, now I'm going to use this. Here we go. Can, uh, is that enough warning? I don't know how to you know the mechanics of this here. But I want to show you what is, is given to us, and I think it is very important. So if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we know chapter, I mean, verse 17 real well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Can you not see it? Oh, you know what? This monitor would help a lot right here. Yeah, so, so here we go. 
Let me see. I'm still, there it is, lining it up right there. And then we, uh, I think, can you see it or is it blurry? Okay, verse 17. Let's try this again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and what? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is something that he's given all of us, is a ministry of reconciliation. Now let me ask you this. How can you fulfill that ministry of reconciliation if you never share with anyone the good news or euangelion? How can you ever fulfill that ministry? If he's given that ministry to all believers, then we all have the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Not that we reconcile people to God, but that we explain to them and we share with them and we very, yea, verily, verily, even try to persuade them to be reconciled with God. Right? You see, if we say that the gift or evangelism is a gift, and, you know, and again, I'm not going to try to, you know, uh, get on my soapbox too long about this, but what they can do is some people say, well, you know what? Sharing my faith is just not my gift. Uh, that's, I don't have the gift of, of the uh, evangelist. So therefore, I don't have to be involved in evangelism or sharing the good news. But you know, First Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify or set apart Christ in your life Always being ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you, what? But with gentleness and reverence. Now, we know Paul was a bull in a china shop. I mean, he wasn't, it seems like he wasn't afraid of anything. He'd talk to anybody and he would share his faith. And, and this was a guy that was stoned and left for dead uh, and thrown out of the city of Lystra. And then uh, he, he gets himself, he comes. Uh, 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 back, uh, I mean, uh, uh, he gains his consciousness again, gets out from under the stones, and what does he do? He goes right back into the city. I don't know about you, but I would have definitely taken that as a word from God that I was released for the responsibility for those people, and I could go somewhere else, but not Paul. So not everyone is going to have necessarily an aggressive mode of evangelism, But I believe that the ministry of reconciliation is something that we all have. And why do I say that? Well, because I think when we look at this passage in Acts 17, it's real easy to say, yeah, I could never do that. Let me tell you, folks, we're living in a world. Your everyday life is in a world that is very, very similar to what it was in Athens whenever Paul went to Athens and gave that message. Because every day you encounter skeptics, encounter people who have wrong beliefs about God. They believe in God, but they have wrong beliefs about God. You'll encounter people that, um, for whatever reason, because of personal issues maybe, don't want to believe in God or don't want to believe in the God that of the Bible. And so they'll recreate certain things about God just to many times deal with their own 
prejudices or their own pains or, or, or the things that they experiences that they've gone through in life. But your world is very similar. And that's what I want us to look at today as we kind of go through this. We'll see some of those uh, similarities. So, there we go. Anyone ever seen the movie 12 Angry Men? Some of you, not many of you. Yeah, it's a great show. I happened to stumble upon it uh, by accident one time. May 1954, um, and uh, actually... um, uh, Henry Fonda was not only the producer, but he also had the lead role in it. And the story is, uh, and by the way, when it came out in, in a, as a movie, it was a flop. But then later on, as time, more and more people discovered it and really watched it, they said, you know, that, that's a really, really good show. It's a classic. It's been remade, uh, I think, a couple times, and also it's been a stage, uh, a stage um, um, show as well. But there was a uh, 18-year-old Puerto Rican youth that had stabbed his father. He had been, he was on trial for killing his father. And of course, there's a whole then backstory about that, about his father and the abuse and the, the difficulties there and all. And of course, uh, the youth, uh, said that he was innocent. He didn't do it. But a lot of the evidence seemed to point towards that. Of course, the story picks up where the judge is giving the jury, they're charged before he releases them into the room. So you don't even see this court trial. A lot of times, like with you do when you read in a John Grisham novel, or you see on Perry Mason or Matlock or something. You know, you see the whole the whole trial. That's where all of the the the, the main story takes place. This one, you don't see any of the trial. It basically picks up where the judge is saying, "Now you are going to decide this young man's fate, and he is if he's convicted, then the penalty is death." However, if you cannot uh, uh, reach a conclusion or decision beyond a reasonable doubt, then you must vote to acquit him. So then that's when they go back into the room, and you've got all these, uh, the, the, as it says, 12 angry men, with the exception of Henry Fonda, so I guess it's 11 uh, angry men. But they go back there, and right from the start, you know, the circumstances are not ideal. It's hot in there. They can't get the fan working and all, and they're already, and a lot of them already have in their minds what the verdict is. And so they sit down, and so then right from the start, they say, well, you know what, let's just see where we are. Let's just go ahead and take a vote. And so they take a vote, everyone's sure, 11 to 1, guilty. Henry Fonda's the only one. He's saying, innocent. And they're like, what? And they're just irate with Henry Fonda. What? How can you possibly say he's innocent? He said, I'm just saying it's possible. And then as the story goes, just one by one, it's discovered what their individual prejudices were. One of the jurors, he's, he's, uh, a, he, he's, uh, alienated from his son. That kind of factors into it. You got a, another one that he was a, a, a rough character on, on the streets and he's kind of almost, kind of wants to leave that behind and maybe if a guilty verdict, it'll kind of put some distance there of his past. You'll find others that they just simply want to go with the flow, don't want to cause any ruffles, you know. Uh, and then there's one that, well, the law must be right. No matter what, the law must be right, so we got to vote this way. I mean, it should be clear. And one by one, they, you, you see their prejudices, and then they're confronted with evidence that could possibly vindicate the young man. And eventually, at the end of the story, or at the end of the movie... They all end up voting 12 to nothing to acquit him, innocent. 
It's a great story in the reality of reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. Now, a lot of times people will make the mistake of saying, you know, well, a jury has to arrive at a decision beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, that's not what it is. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. In other words, if there is absolutely no reasonable doubt whatsoever, then you vote to convict the person. But if there's the possibility, then our our legal system was set up by our founding fathers. We're saying it would be better for a guilty person to go free if they cannot decide beyond a reasonable doubt than for an innocent person to be imprisoned or or, uh, executed. So it's a fascinating story, beyond a reasonable doubt. Because you know what? I don't know about you, but even though I've been a Christian for many, many years, there are things that I might have doubts about. Doesn't mean that my faith goes out the window. Doesn't mean I don't believe in God anymore. But there's times you can go through life and you can have doubts about certain things. That's part of being human. And when we have those doubts, depending on what they might be about, then we are, we have the opportunity to be able to look at it and then decide and reason through it. And that's what we see in this passage where Paul is reasoning with the Athenians. We'll see in just a moment. Now I had the opportunity uh, several years ago to do an intensive little study when I was in, uh, in one uh, seminary program in Oxford. And this is a very well-known bookstore in Oxford called Blackwell's. Now, if you look at this, it puts Barnes and Nobles, you know, I mean, Barnes and Nobles looks like a garage sale, you know, compared to what this, uh, this uh, store has. I mean, it has everything and it's got multiple levels and every shelf is just jammed, packed with uh, every topic, every subject that you can imagine. Now, since Oxford, I would say probably in our day and time, is considered kind of like one of the premier uh, intellectual centers of our world, you know, so you can imagine some of the books that are on the shelves of this, uh, of this uh, um, bookstore. So I went in there and I was looking at the bookstore, I mean, looking on the shelves, and of course I went to the theology section. And here's this massive section on theology and then world religions and then philosophy and, and all this. So I'm looking. And right here on, on the shelf is a book that's written by a former preacher who ended up leaving the faith and becoming an atheist. Fifteen feet away on a shelf one below over to the side is another book written by a now preacher of one that had a similar background, similar education, but ended up becoming a Christian because of the evidence that he saw for the faith. What's the two, what were the two differences between those two individuals? Well, as I read through, and I bought both books, by the way, because uh, I wanted to see what this guy had to say, and I wanted to read it, and I wanted to be up on what everything I looked through in the book He would say that he looked at it rationally, he looked at the situation rationally, and he could no longer believe this God, the God of the Bible, and so forth, and therefore became an atheist because, and when you read through it, it's all the way through the book, he had a very, very painful experience in his life that he could not get through and could not reconcile. 
and it was on every page. No matter if he was talking about the scriptures and whether or not they were reliable, he, he, you could see his pain and, and the evidence of his experience that was coming through on those pages. The problem of evil. That's probably one of the, the major objections to the Christian faith is when you have someone that they can't reconcile. How can there be a good God if there's evil in the world? Either he is, uh, either he is a good God but powerless to do anything about it, or he's powerful enough to do something about it, but he's not a good God because he just won't do something about it. Now, this isn't going to be a, a lesson on the problem of evil. That's a, another lesson in and of itself. Uh, but things that we do need to remember, uh, two things real quickly. One, God gets blamed a lot for things that's because of us as human beings. And number two, if God was going to do away with all evil, not just natural evil, but moral evil as well, if he's going to do away with all of that, then he's going to have to take away our free will. And boy, human beings love to buck up if it seems like their free will is going to be messed with. Because you can't have both. Because sometimes people make the choice to do evil. But even in that, God can work in the midst of that. So where are we here? Good. We're good on time here. So uh, that's what I saw between uh, when I was looking at those two books, and I was thinking, you know, it was experience... That dictated a lot. Now, the one that became a Christian, guess what? Also had a... Is that me? Use a handheld? How about if I just try to be real still here and I'll stick with this one. Okay. So anyways. The one that became a Christian... Also had a painful experience. Started looking at the evidence for God. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. Testing. Is that good? I saw Mark do this the other day, so I can too. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um... So uh, he had the same experience, but he looked at the evidence and he ended up saying, you know, there's got to be a God. Makes sense. You don't have to be an expert apologist to be able to practice what 1 Peter 3.15 says. To set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always being ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you, but with gentleness and reverence. What I've also found is many times when we share our faith and we think that that other person has really thought through all of their objections and all, we really find out that they really haven't. They many times just parrot what they've heard others say. When we consider Christianity, and I feel confident in saying this, and I think Mark has said it many, many times in different ways, but when we look at Christianity, when you consider P.A.D., the prophecies, the archaeology, And the documents, it sets apart Christianity from every other world religion, bar none. It is totally unique. So we have confidence as believers. But I want to say this, and we'll get into the text here. Just like Paul, 
It is not your responsibility. It is not my responsibility to convert anyone. In fact, we can't convert anyone. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What Jesus said whenever he was ascending back to the Father at the day of Pentecost, what was it he told them? You shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses. When Mark calls a witness, he's not asking them to convince the jury in a final verdict. He's just asking them to speak to what he's asking them to testify to. Just tell me what you know. You're not ultimately responsible for the verdict. That's somebody else's job. Just tell me what you know. Tell me what I'm asking you for information on. So the backdrop, this is where we're uh, going to be looking at the uh, events. I guess my little arrows didn't show up here. Um, hmm? That's just not here on the monitor. Okay, good. That's strange. Okay. So um, what we have right here is Thessalonica and Berea. That's the passage we're going to look at with the first part and just giving us a little bit of uh, background uh, of where Paul and his companions are traveling, Silas and Timothy. So they've just come from uh, the area at the bottom part of Macedonia, and then now we're going to pick it up in Thessalonica, and this is what it says. I can't read up there. Okay. Now, when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. That's very similar language, by the way, when it was talking about Jesus, whenever he would get away and pray. Say, and Jesus went away to a a quiet place to pray, as was his habit or as was his custom. So Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys, and this is the second missionary journey happening between about five, uh, 51, 52, 53 A.D., some in that, in that area, it was his ha- habit or custom to go into the synagogues of the Jews. And Paul went in, as, he was, as was his custom, on three Sabbaths. He, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and what? Proving. Yeah, I heard a few weeks ago when uh, uh, Mark was uh, speaking, and also last week, he said, you know what? I believe you can prove the truth of the gospel from the scriptures. I believe you can prove it. That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now look at these key things here. Verse 2. As was his custom on the three Sabbaths, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures to give a reasonable defense, to give the reasons for the hope within you, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. Why do you believe what you believe? Now, a lot of times, you know, as you know, uh, Brent had a, a real passion uh, with the, uh, uh, in, in being able to dialogue with the Mormons recently, and he shared that with you. And uh, he wasn't afraid to go in and reason with them and talk with them. 
And and I was kind of the same way. Um, I, I don't know, uh, Matthew and, and Morgan, and are you all in here? Did you make it today somewhere in here? And, and Chloe? Uh, they, they would tell you that whenever uh, Mormons were in the neighborhood, they just knew that I was ready for a visit. And I was just hoping they'd come down our street. Hey, Dad, they're coming down our street. Oh, great. You know, and then I'll get ready and all. When they would come, then I'd open up the door and I'd shake their hand. I was friendly to them and they were kind of taken aback because why? Because they would say over and over again that Christians would go, oh, I'm Methodist, no thanks, and shut the door. Or I'm Baptist, I know what I believe, boom, and shut the door. No, we should never be that way. We should be confident enough in our faith in what we believe, that we're willing to share that with anyone and have a dialogue and reason with them about what you believe. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Okay, so in between the last verse there and this verse, it said that many did believe. Many came to Christ. Uh, it said, and not even just a few women, Greek women. And, and he does it here. And then in the passage when they were, they were in Berea, that Luke makes a specific point of saying that many women came to faith in Christ. Wasn't just the men, the women as well. But the Jews were what? Jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they had, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers uh, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They formed a mob. They formed a mob. They wanted to shut them down. They didn't want what they were saying to be spread around. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, just in that one verse, all kinds of stuff. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And yet they're saying they're accusing them of having turned the world upside down with what they believe. Have you ever been around someone that accuses you of doing what they themselves do? You ever been around anyone like that? Have we ever seen in our modern day people accusing a group of people of being hateful and, uh, uh, and, and sowing seeds of violence and anger and whatever else and all, and yet they're the ones that go out and then burn buildings down or break windows and shatter and have all these riots, and then all the time they're saying, the reason why we're doing this is because of their hatred. What's wrong with this picture? Remember Solomon? There's nothing new under the sun. Some of you maybe have experienced it in your marriages, but I'll move on. (laughs) Would you love for someone to be able to say about you, my goodness, will you please settle down? You're turning the world upside down with what you're talking about. What a wonderful thing for Christians to be accused of turning the world upside down. That's what Jesus did. That's what his disciples did. Let's continue the work. Let's continue the pattern to turn the world upside down. Now, these Jews were jealous, and that's why they were coming out, and they didn't like the message that he was uh, that, that, that they were uh, perpetrating and that they were sharing with the people around, and so they wanted to shut them down. Once again, they wanted to shut down new ideas. 
Once again, do we see that in our day and time today? People are threatened by to, to, to operate in the arena of ideas. Ideas to some people become toxic and they want to shut it down if it disagrees with what they, what they agree with or what they believe. But Jason received them and then look at that last one. The decrees of Caesar saying there is saying that there's another king but Jesus. All the way back in the history of Israel, when they one day came to Samuel and said, look, Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king like everyone else. They had a theocracy at that time. God was their king. But they came to Samuel and said, but you know what? We want to be like everyone else, and we want a king like everyone else. Samuel, in not so many words, basically said, you'll rue the day that you said that, but you'll get your king. Remember, God said to Samuel, you know, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So we'll give them a king. Do you remember when Jesus was brought out before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate said, behold, your king. And what did the people say? We have no king but Caesar. How horrendous was that for the people of God to say and admit outwardly, we have no king but Caesar. And here the Jews who were jealous were saying the same thing because that had taken root in their lives. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, verse 10. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. There he goes again. His custom, right, goes into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, thankfully about that, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, these Jews were more noble. They were more open-minded. They were not so prejudiced as the Jews just a few miles away that were back there uh, in Thessalonica. And what did they do? They received it with eagerness. But look at this. Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They weren't afraid of new ideas on the, on the surface but what did they do? They took it. They listened. Say, hey, this is, this is amazing. We, we want to hear more about this. And they examined it to see if it made sense, to see if it was true. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So once again, they're saying, we're only doing this because of this, the, the seeds of discord that they're sowing. We're only acting out because of what they represent and what they're doing and the message that they're sending around. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted, uh, uh, who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas or for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, we come to verse 16. Now, Paul, while Paul was waiting for them, who is that? Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue, there's his habit again, with the Jews and the devout persons who were the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He was provoked. Now, a lot of times, I'll talk with believers, and we can be, if you will, provoked by the, the condition of our world. We'll look at, at our country or we'll look at, at our world as a whole. We'll say, boy, it just seems like the world's going to pot. It just seems like the world is just, it's just this, it's a downward spiral, morality, spiritually, every which way. It just seems like we're on such a decline. But notice that Paul was sitting and looking around at a world that was very much that same way, but he was provoked because of them not knowing the true God, not just their behavior. You see, sometimes we'll look at our country and we'll say, oh, it's just, isn't our country just becoming a mess? It, it, isn't it just turning out to be, uh, it, you know, it's just not like it used to be. And we're looking at behavior. But as believers, we should always be provoked in our spirit that we're concerned that people don't know Christ. The scripture says in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You see, many times we'll look at people who don't know God and we'll get frustrated with them because they're acting like people who don't know God. But if they don't know God, they're just acting like people who don't know God. Paul is provoked because he's looking around. And he's like, all these idols... All these people searching for truth, searching for uh, uh, where we came from, searching for answers of why we're here, searching for answers of where we're going. And he was provoked in his spirit. But he immediately took action. Where do you go? Into the synagogue to begin reasoning with the Jews and the devout persons. He started with those who at least had some frame of reference that he might be able to shared the truth with them. The gathering place, the marketplace, that was the place where uh, the, the, the spiritual hub, the, the po- political hub, the, you know, people would just gather down in, in that area. This is um, the, obviously the ruins, but this is the, uh, the uh, marketplace, if you will, in Thessalonia, or, I mean in, in, uh, in, uh, in Athens. And so they would just gather down there, and that's just kind of was the hub of the city where everything went on. He didn't just go to where the religious people were, but he also made himself available right where everybody else would be. And sometimes as believers, we will we'll only hang around with believers. But God wants us to encounter People who are lost, and they're not hard to find, right? Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? The language there is almost like a bird that is picking in the gutter bits and pieces of food and seed and different stuff and just kind of pecking around. And so what these learned individuals, these people that were very proud of their intellect, were basically saying, he's kind of like a bird. He's just picking up all these ideas, and they're not making any sense, and he's just kind of babbling on. They're kind of making fun of him. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, 
he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he has he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what's interesting here is you've got Epicurus. He was the one, and, and the Epicureans, uh, they were uh, not necessarily believed in, in God, but if there was a God, he wasn't really involved in the affairs of men. And the Epicureans believed that the, 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 the thing to pursue in life was uh, um, pleasure, and, and, and not necessarily sensuous pleasure. In fact, sometimes they mock that. But, but pleasure and, 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 and just uh, uh, an easy life, an enjoyable life. That was virtuous. Zeno used to uh, teach and talk from a portico, a stoa in Greek. And that's where the word stoics came from. And stoics believed that there is a cosmic order to the universe. They were pantheists. But there's a cosmic order that's kind of set all this into play, and it is up to human beings through reason and 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 um, discipline to fall in line with that overall purpose. And what that would often lead to was a uh, really uh, arrogance, and they kind of felt like you know they were really you know special people. You know that's where the word comes from, stoic. When someone's stoic, you know, it's like they don't smile very much, you know, because they're serious all the time and. You know, life is too short. We must be serious. And so that's where the Stoic philosophers came. And they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So here's the intellectuals that are saying, what is this you're talking about? Here, come to the Areopagus, and we want to hear more about this. For you bring some strange teachings to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke, most likely a Gentile, giving the account. And by the way, there's some scholars that believe, you know what? The account that Luke gives in Acts 17 and and, and the the speech that Paul gives doesn't really sound too much like Paul. It, it's something different. It was, so he, was he paraphrasing? Did he modify it? Did he change it? And all? But I think the evidence is there that this was Pauline. But the thing about Paul is that he was a master at understanding his context so that then he could share the gospel, so he could find common ground. We'll really see that in just a second. But the Athenians are saying, what are these foreign ideas that you're bringing? Now, this is what I find interesting. Here's the Areopagus. And it's just a flat rock. Now, in Athens' heyday, when, when we're looking at this passage right now with Paul, uh, these, Athens has kind of been on a decline for quite some time. In the 4th and, uh, and 5th century B.C., Athens was in its heyday. That's when Socrates was there and uh, uh, Sophocles and, and, and you had all the major philosophers, Plato, Aristotle and all. That was in its heyday. But now, and, and then that's when judicial matters were decided, legislative matters were decided by the, the city fathers uh, on this rock. But at this time, now, mostly it would just be, uh, you know, overseeing ideas of education or, or religion, but it was no f- official capacity. But nevertheless, they wanted to bring them where everyone then could hear what, what Paul was talking about. Now, I find this interesting because if you go by land where Paul was there in Athens and go up 
uh, up the coast and, and, and across to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and then come on down to go, and then you go through Syria and then Lebanon and then eventually to Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and where the resurrection happened. It's about close to 3,000 miles. So it's a good distance, but about 3,000 miles. However, if you cut straight across the Mediterranean Sea, and we know that they had ships and boats in that day, well, then it was only about 785 miles. Now, that's about 30 miles more than it is from right where we are to El Paso, Texas. Now, what's interesting to me is that Paul, second missionary journey, is around 5150 A.D. Uh, the, The... the time, and this is another study in and of itself, but the timing, our calendars are probably off a little bit about when Jesus was actually born. He was probably born about three or four, actually, B.C., but the timing is uh, done differently for our calendars. So he probably died around 30 A.D. So from 30 A.D. to 51, 52 A.D., when Paul is on his second missionary journey, it's over 20 years Now, I would think that even someone walking from El Paso to Houston eventually would get here, and some of those ideas would flow back, and we would hear about some things that happened in El Paso, Paso, especially if a man was crucified and then raised from the dead. That's fascinating that these most learned individuals still living on their past glory of Athens, which was the hub of intellectualism in the world, the seat of Western civilization, are saying to Paul, what is this you're talking about? We've never heard this before. As Paul's message, you break down in, in, in Acts 17 from the verses that we'll hear, see here in just a minute, three things. God created the world. God created man, and man needs God. And man's attempts to represent God with idols is foolishness. Now, I want just one second just to say one more thing about the distance there. Seems like a relative, within 20 years, it seems like news like that could have traveled some 700 and some odd miles. In fact, it could have been in just a few days going across by ship. Here's what I think, as we look at that, what is it that we could take away from that? I think it's this. God's primary mode of People hearing and sharing the good news of Christ is still person to person. So see, in our day and time, we've got incredible technology. You can tweet the gospel to thousands of people in an instant. We have modern technology. We've got podcasts. We have tweeting. We've got email. We've got uh, you know, uh, uh, television. We still, we, that old thing called radio. We still got that. We got, we got all kinds of way to blast messages out to our world. And surely they could have heard that before. But the thing that makes the difference is when someone is searching for truth and they encounter a believer who knows the truth 
and they're able to match up how they live with what they say they believe, that's when the message has a chance to penetrate. Now, I'm not saying that you can leave a track in all the restrooms, you know, in New York if you ever go there or Los Angeles, whatever, and leave tracks there and somebody come along, they'll pick up a track, they'll read the four spiritual laws, and they can get saved. Of course I believe that that's possible. Of course I believe that we, we can share the, uh, the word of God with the Gideons, with people. We heard evidence right there. There are people that get saved that way. But I still believe the primary way is for one person to tell another person how to know Christ and how to know God and have peace with God. So, Paul, here we go, five minutes. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Do we live in a time when there's a lot of people who are religious? Yes. In fact, many people will uh, proudly say, well, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I, in other words, I have spiritual beliefs, which they mean is I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little bit of that. I like that. And we'll kind of add it all together, put it on my tray, and I'll go through and check out the cafeteria line. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So, see, they had all these gods. They had all the Greek gods, the Roman gods, and then they had the, you know, any other gods in there. And in case they left anyone out, they had an altar to an unknown God. So, hey, we got everything covered. We've got all of our bases covered. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, you know, that one right there where he says that um, he made the world and everything in it and does not live in temples made with hands. It reminds me in Acts chapter 6 when Stephen was giving his message to the high priest and he was about to be stoned. He said in verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Why is that significant? Because Paul, who was Saul at that moment, was there, and the Scripture says, giving hearty agreement to killing Stephen, was holding the coats of the men that were carrying out the deed. And it makes me wonder if when he was on, when he was speaking to them on Mars Hill, when he was there in Athens, if when he got to that point, he remembered that occasion when Stephen was being stoned. And he was holding the coats of the men that were doing it. And he remembered Stephen saying, the Most High does not dwell in houses or temples made by man. I, I wonder if just for a split second he just thought, wow, how far I've come in what I used to believe and what I believe now. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What does that say to the Epicureans who believe, well, maybe there's a God, maybe not, but uh, if he is, he's not involved in the affairs of men, and the main goal is to, uh, to seek pleasure in this life? 
Well, it says right here that there is a God. He doesn't need anything from us, but he is involved in our lives. In fact, he gives us everything that we need, breath and everything. He's the one that supplies it. He's intimately involved in our lives. The scripture says that the grace of God will reign on the just and the unjust. So in other words, there's lost people that are daily benefiting from the grace and mercy of God, the kindness of God. But we need God. He doesn't need us, but we need him. And what about the Stoics? The Stoics are self-made men. They're, they're you know, well, it's discipline, and that's how we uh, move through this life, and God is everywhere. No, that's not what it says. Paul says God made the world and everything in it. He's not in everything that he made. He's above it. He made the world. And you know what? You can be as disciplined as you want, but you're not a self-made person. You need him. And he's the one that works in your life. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the earth, or face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God, seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. It's like he's looking at these people who are groping in the dark, And Paul is delivering good news to them, saying, I'm going to tell you about the one who is not far off. He's right here. You kids ever play Marco Polo in the pool? Supposed to have your eyes shut, Marco! And then the person who's at Polo, and you're supposed to try to touch that person, you know, tag and and do that. You got Marco, Polo, Marco. And all the while, the person saying Polo is moving around trying not to get tagged. Well, God's not liking some cosmic Marco Polo game with us. Yeah, we're looking around. Where is truth? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And yet God is saying, I am right here, right here. And I'm not like all those other gods. And I'm not like all those other ones that don't want to have anything to do with you. They set the world in motion, Zeus and all of those others. No, I'm a personal God and I'm right here. He's not far from each one of us. Look what Paul says. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of our poets have said, or some of your poets, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That line right there, in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides, a poet from Crete, from about 600 B.C., and also Paul quotes him again, in a line from his works in Titus 1.12, when he says that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Boy, he thought a lot of his own folks, didn't he? And some scholars believe, oh, well, Paul made a, a, a logical fallacy here, or he, he, he made a mistake, because if you quote from someone who says all uh, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, well, what about say about him? Well, if they're all liars, well, then you can't believe what he says. No, it's hyperbole. He's saying, look, by and large, you're going to find that a lot of these people are just liars, gluttons, and, you know, that's why sometimes you say, oh, he's such a Cretan. Not a compliment. It's not a compliment. And then the other line right here is from uh, Eratus, a poet from Cilicia, from between 315 and 240 B.C. And this quote is from his work, Phenomenia. So Paul is quoting from their own poets to find common ground. And what does he do? He pulls something out of their own works and he says, even your own poets said that in him we live and move and have our being. 
and even the, the, the material you're, you're familiar with, that we are indeed his offspring. He created us. We are a part of God. We're created in his image. Genius. And what Paul could basically be saying, they were saying that something that didn't even realize the ramifications of what they were saying. But I'm telling you the truth. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed uh, uh, by, uh, by the art and imagination of man. He didn't start in the mind of God, uh, mind of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's missing here? You know, if Paul was in one of our modern day evangelism programs, he probably failed the course. There's no mention of the cross and there's no mention of Jesus's name. Now, we were told earlier in the chapter that he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. But in Luke's account of this, if this is what he said to those people, he didn't even mention Jesus' name and he didn't talk about the cross. Did he fail? Did he not give them enough, enough information? No. He said that there is one that's been appointed, that he's going to be our judge one day. It's time for everyone to repent And God is given the truth that this man, him, he raised from the dead, which not many of you have seen that happen very often. Evidence of God's work. So when he shared the truth with the people, and they probably then heard that he'd been talking about Jesus and the resurrection, what kind of responses can you and I expect when we testify to our faith in Christ? The same responses that Paul got. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked, said, oh, this is foolishness. Others said, we will hear you again about this. We want to hear more about this. And, and, uh, and Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were the women, mentions again, and others. So when we are faithful as witnesses for Christ, what kind of response from people can we expect? The same kind that the Apostle Paul got. Did everyone automatically say, oh, Paul, you're the smartest person I've ever heard on the face of the planet. I believe. How can I not believe? Some just said, this is ridiculous. This is foolishness. But others said, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. But then others said, I've always wondered if there was a God, but now you just told me his name. Now I know who it is. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we be faithful in our witnesses. We live in a world very similar to Paul's. It just has different names, different titles, different packages. But the contents are exactly the same. 
We're going to face people that, for whatever reason, uh, they they are against God or don't want to believe in God, but a lot of that is rooted in either personal hurts or pains or suffering from their own life, and they just can't reconcile it in their life. We're going to meet others that intellectually they feel like, I just can't believe, I can't have faith in a God. We're going to meet others that have just been waiting to hear who this God is. And Jesus never told us that we were responsible for saving anyone. We are just simply to be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for loving us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you, Lord, that you placed us in a time and place where we could hear the gospel and we could know about you, the one true God, and how you made us, you created us for a relationship with you, and Lord, you have given us a promise that if we trust you, we can also know where we will go one day when this life is over. I pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we will have boldness, not always to speak intellectually like Paul, but just simply to give a witness for the hope that's within us. For Lord, you bring people across our paths every day that are very similar to the people that Paul encountered. And Lord, we know that sometimes they won't believe, but Lord, we also know that when your Holy Spirit moves on their hearts and they relinquish control, many will. Help us to be faithful, we pray, in this week that lies ahead, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. God bless you.